Good morning. My name's Jenny. I'm the associate pastor here at Bethany Northeast, and I uh, have the privilege of sharing with you all this morning from our sermon series. We've been in the sermon series called Constant. There are booklets in the back. If you don't have one, I invite you to grab one either now or after the service. They um, have notes for every one of our sermons in this series. This is a, a sermon series revealing the entire meta-narrative of scripture as it plays out in different constant elements of our lives. So in some of the past weeks, to give you examples, we've talked about God's glory as a constant. We've talked about the role of water in scripture and in our lives as a constant. Uh, Last week, Jack spoke about our covenant relationships with God and one another. And today, we're talking about work. The concept of work as it relates to the big meta-narrative of scripture. And there's four plot points. If you've been here the last several weeks, these will be very familiar to you. But there's four major plot points we're trying to really reveal in scripture. First, the creation or design of work. Second, the disruption of that, of our work. The disruption from sin and brokenness entering the world. Third, we're talking about the entrance of hope as it relates to our work. And finally, the ultimate redemption, the culmination of our work. So that's what we're talking about this morning. Every one of us in this room is involved with some type of work. And I'm gonna argue we have been our whole lives. And yet, this is an area of life I think we as a church really rarely discuss. We don't talk a lot from the front about work, except maybe by way of an example here or there. And yet, I I think we'll see this morning, this is a central part of who we are as people and as God's creation. The capacity, the desire to work is a core part of who we are as humans, and God deeply cares about how we think about work and how we go about our work. And so before, we're going to dive into that today, but before we begin, let's, let's pray over our study together. God, we come humbly before you this morning, thankful, God, that you have given us your word that we might be able to learn more about who you are from it and more about who you've created us to be. We ask those two things for us this morning, especially as we are studying something that is so tangible and real to all of us, God. Teach us by your spirit, we pray. Give us ears to listen and crowd out all, or wade through all the kind of clutter in our minds and really enable us to hear you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this may not come as a surprise to some of you. I've, I personally would say I feel a little bit inadequate standing before you to talk about work today because I have had a pretty broken relationship with work for much of my life. Um, when I was a freshman in high school, I remember my parents coming in and telling me I should really be going to bed at 11 or midnight as I was doing my homework still. They were worried about me being kind of obsessive about getting good grades. When I was 15, I decided my major in college needed to be accounting. I liked math, so it was the best choice because I knew, I've told you this before, I knew I wouldn't be unemployed when I graduated college. I was 15, and I was worried about being unemployed six years down the road. And so I said, I'm going to be an accountant. And sure enough, that's what I did. So pretty much from as long as I can remember, and by the way, it worked. Nine months before I graduated college, I had my job lined up. So... It worked for me, but that was how obsessed I was. So pretty much from as long as I can remember, hard work's come kind of naturally to me. Good boundaries between work and rest have not come supernaturally to me. And so I 
come before you uh, knowing full well that I have a lot to learn from, from this sermon, and we're going to talk about rest in two weeks, and from that sermon probably even more. <laughs> but we're going to talk today um, about this idea of work, and I wanted to share a little bit of a story where it was never more apparent to me that I did have this brokenness. I was, um, I was traveled for a year, I've told you about that, a mission organization, uh, different place pretty much every night for a year, nonstop traveling. And then I came back to Seattle, and this was big for me. I didn't have a job lined up. So I was unemployed, living with a friend, and I was 26, but it was one of the darkest seasons in, mem- in my memory, in my life so far. And I remember very distinctly, my roommate would come home from her job at Starbucks headquarters every day, and she'd ask me, you know, what did you do today? Not in a mean way, but curious. And I would be ashamed just that I didn't have a a very good answer. I'd mumble something about job searching again. Um, But I couldn't really account for how the time had passed. I couldn't account for it. I I don't know where it went. Now, actually, I do. I do kind of know. I remember I was watching, like, all seven seasons of Lost on Netflix. And, yeah, it was, like, my first binge-watching experience. And you could say, oh, that sounds pretty great. But actually, I was never more unhappy than I was in that moment in my life. And even now, that looking back sounds pretty great sometimes to me. But somehow, that lack of clear structure, that lack of clear work and job, a job to do in my days, caused me to be deeply unhappy, unfulfilled. And I think there's something important in that lesson to us as human beings, that something about a job and our work is important. And I was, I was lucky. I was not out of work for long. I found a temp job at Moss Adams, and then uh, that lasted me long enough to enroll in seminary, and off I was going again. But in some ways, I actually wonder and admit to you, perhaps that season should have been longer for me. I probably would have learned more about work and the fact that it's bigger than just a conventional job. But that aside, I worry about the seasons of my life ahead where I won't have a conventional job. And what will that, what, how will I do? I have much to learn is what I'm saying to you in this area. But I want to define work for us this morning. And I want to define it much bigger than I was able to in that season. Because the definition's much broader than what we talk about when we say, I'm going to go to work today. It's not just a job. In fact, every one of us, and I mentioned this before, I think every one of us at every stage of life is given a work to do. From infancy, we're working at something. We're working to walk or to speak or to read and write. And then we're working to play a sport. And as we get older, work does become more of something we go do in our heads. But in fact, work is cleaning the house, work is gardening, cooking, paying bills, fixing broken screens. Those are all work. It's making a model airplane, I think. It's knitting a sweater. It's serving at your local food bank, and it's setting up the chairs, as many of you did uh, this morning, right here for for a worship service to happen. Those are all elements of work. And so work is something every one of us does, I would argue, at least nearly every day of our lives. But and I want to kind of dive into our creation narrative with that definition in mind and see where does this concept of work come from for us as human beings. We studied a few weeks ago the Imago Dei, that we are made in the very image and likeness of our God. And so first we're going to look at who God is in this creation narrative and what role work has in in who God is. 
In Genesis chapter 1, the very first sentence is, in the beginning, God created. God created. This is not unknown to most of us. The The creation narrative is the first place we find God working. And the creative act of imagining something and then bringing it into form, into being, is central to God's character. It's the first type of work we see God doing, but it is not the only type we see, even in these these first couple chapters of the Bible. It's not the only way God works, and because the creation part is one familiar to most of us, I want to spend a little time on what these other three that I've found. There are more ways God works. There's three more I want to talk about today. In the first chapters of Genesis alone, we also find God ordering the created world. This one's my personal favorite. He names the sky, sky. He names the ground, land. He orders rhythms to light and darkness, right? He orders the creatures to different kinds of movement, from swimming to flying to creeping. God is the one who gives order to chaos. So that's the second kind. There's an ordering he does. The third is when God creates Adam and then Eve, we see a third kind of work. Because God cares for them and provides for them. I would call this a nurturing, this third kind of work. Genesis 1, verse 29, God reveals how they and all the creatures of the earth will be able to find food. He's providing sustenance for them. And when Adam has been created and God sees that he's, he's alone, what does he do? He creates someone to be there with him. He, he's caring for him. He's nurturing him, making sure he's provided for This is another kind of work we see God do. And the fourth kind of work you could say God does in these chapters is if God creates and then orders and nurtures, the fourth kind of work is God commissioning or calling others to continue this work. And this is what we see in Genesis 1. This is where teachers are often what they're doing. They're commissioning. They're calling others into a work. And so God tells Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it. We read this part of Genesis 1. Essentially, he's inviting them to be co-workers with him. God could have simply made all of the human beings that the earth needed. He could have populated the whole earth without Adam and Eve, right? He could have cared for all of the earth without Adam and Eve, but he invites them in. He invites us in to join his work. And God then also in Genesis 2 invites Adam to name all of the animals, which I love. God could have named them and just told Adam what those names were, but God invites Adam into that ordering work that God has. And so this is the fourth thing. God is a commissioning, a calling. It's It's another kind of work we see God do. And I think this is fundamental because we often think of God's work as creator. We call God creator God very often. And it's really important, obviously. But Genesis was revealing that God works in many ways, and thus we are created to work in many different kinds of ways. And all of those are central to who we are in God's image. And for me, this idea that God's work in this world is more than, than just the creative act, and that God's a God who orders and nurtures and commissions is really good news. Because uh, as an accountant by trade, at least initially, I have often felt left out of the theological statement that human beings are like co-creators with God. 
although it's true, and I think it's true of every one of us, regardless of how creative we feel, I will share with you that practically speaking, art projects growing up were the bane of my existence. I was so not interested in, in art projects as a kid. Or, and, and now as an adult, there's certain craft parties you can go to sometimes, especially as a woman. Sounds literally about as fun to me as going to the dentist. Like, I'm not exaggerating, really. I go, okay, crafting, dentist, about the same. So, when, whether you, I know, this is just me, this is who I am. God has designed me as someone who loves to order things, not so much as someone who loves to create things in the conventional sense we think about. So whether you're a student or a young professional or a stay-at-home parent or an artist or a retired empty nester, whatever it is, you have a work to do that's somewhere in this character of God because God's ordained it as part of the very fabric of your being. And that being said, many of us in this room might be saying, what is that work God has called me to? I don't know what it is. Or maybe you're saying, that might be true, but I don't like my work at all. It is hard. There's nothing goodness in it that I'm seeing. Or maybe you're thinking, all I do is work. Isn't there supposed to be more, than, more to life than that? And this brings me, it's a good segue, to a second, our second theme in this, our second kind of plot point in this narrative of scripture, because the reality is, though work is created to be inherently good, and it is, it's part of what it means to be human, but it has been marred by the reality of sin. We don't have to go very far in scripture to learn this. This is Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve turn away from God um, and from who God created them to be. And the consequence of that is that their work becomes laborious, full of toil and difficulty. And Eve's work of co-creating with God in childbirth is laden with pain and toil in verse 16. And then in verse 17, Adam's work of caring for the soil, of tilling the land and the plants becomes difficult and laborious. And the word in most translations uh, in Genesis 3, verses 16 and 17, is, is the word toil. It's not work. And I want to spend a minute just on this word because it's different from the word for work. We find that word in Genesis 2, verse 2. It says, um, in that passage, how God rests on the seventh day. We're going to talk about rest in two weeks, but God rests on the seventh day from all his work. And that word is the Hebrew word malaka. It means occupation from all his workmanship, from all his business. That's that word. That's the meaning of that word. But then when God describes to Eve and then to Adam what the consequences of this sin will be, God uses the Hebrew word not for work, but it's a bone, which means literally worrisomeness, pain, hardship. It's translated pain for Eve in most English translations and then toil for Adam. But it's the same word, it's a bone. It means the work they do will be painful or worrisome or hard. And so sin and brokenness enter the world and they have caused our work to tend towards toil. It's a source of pain instead of a source of life and flourishing and thriving. And there are four ways again, sorry, you're getting lots of information today, but there are four ways again I want to highlight this morning that work has been perverted into this toil, into this pain. And though there are many more, we're going to look at four today. And the first way 
is that the lie, there's a lie out there that work is inherently devoid of meaning or goodness in and of itself. Solomon, we read this as well today, or part of this, writing in Ecclesiastes 1. He's the king of Israel. He's known as one of the wisest people to walk the earth. He says in verse 2, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun, right? And many of you today might resonate with that rhetorical question. What's the point of it all? I show up at my job day after day, maybe, and I'm not making anything, I'm not producing anything. What's the point? Or maybe I do load after load of laundry or dish after dish after dish of washing and it's just dirty again the next day. What's, what is the point of all of this work? And maybe you think work is just a means to an end, right? It's just like for animals. It's just for survival. I struggled with this tremendously when I was at uh, Deloitte. So that was the job I got right after college. It's a big accounting firm. And I worked there for three years. And when I started, I was an entry-level auditor. So I do audits of companies. And uh, I'm going to speak in some jargon for a minute, and you're going to stay awake, I promise. Um, my job was to sit there and study the numbers that the, the company that we are auditing gives us and make sure they were right. This is what an auditor does, in case you didn't know. And then I would tell, the partner would eventually get the word that all the work had been done, and they would print out a one-page opinion letter and attach it to the financial statements that says, yep, the numbers look right to us, in layman's terms. This is an auditor's job. A one-page opinion letter, maybe two if it's a bad opinion, but one page if it's a good opinion, and that's it. And I would spend endless hours each day looking at these numbers, tying them out to other numbers, making beautiful spreadsheets, really beautiful, uh, with beaver's colors, that proved that I had looked at all the numbers, that I tied them out like I should, and my manager would review what I did and leave me about a thousand review notes, and then they would tell the partner, hey, it's done, the opinion letter would get written, and all my hard work on those spreadsheets would get locked into a file, only to be destroyed in seven years if all goes well. So if they don't sue us, we get to destroy it. Okay, that... Those who aren't accountants, I'm sorry. So you can wake up. But as a Christian woman, I struggled with what is the meaning of this work? I found this job incredibly devoid of meaning. And Ecclesiastes kind of hits it right on the head. How could I be fulfilling my calling to be a Christ follower if I was working 3,000 hours a year to do something no one would ever see? And today... If I could go back and talk to my 22, 23-year-old self about the inherent value of work, I would. Because here's the thing. I loved those elaborate spreadsheets. I did. I loved make numbers and making sense and problem-solving when things didn't tie out. I still do. It's why I still work at an accounting office two days a week. It's why I still try to live into this ordering personality that God gave me. Because just doing this and the very act of doing that work is part of what it means to live into my vocation as a human being, to work as God does. And for many of you, you might resonate with that, where your work, whatever it might be, feels hard. Or maybe you say, no, actually, I love my work. 
I can definitely see what the outcome is. I teach, or I'm the primary caregiver for kids, and it feels very important. But either way, it's important. Whether you can totally see the tangible outcome or not. The work, the ordering of our world, the nurturing of our world, the creating in our world is all important to God. But I want to talk about, especially to those of us who maybe didn't resonate with that first story I just told, <clears throat> maybe you love your work. But that the second way that work is perverted is in the lie that work is all you are. Your work is all you are. That it's the only thing that has meaning in life. And this is what happens when we're so tied into our specific job, especially, or work, that it's wrapped up in our very identity where you don't know what you would be if you weren't a mom or if you weren't an Amazon executive or if you weren't a professor. You don't know what you'd do if you didn't do the job you do now. And it's deathly frightening to you. And this is the kind of thinking that turns some of us into workaholics or work addicts. When it becomes all that we are, and instead of believing that you're inherently loved, you're worthy just for who you are, a created image of God, but that in fact your work is all you are. And that's why Paul, I think in his letters over and over again, tells us that it is by grace we are saved. It is by grace we even breathe. It's not by our work. Ephesians 2 verse 8 may be familiar to many of us. You have been saved through faith, not from yourselves. It's a gift. And, you, and not by works so that no man can boast. Not by works so that no one can boast. We're not saved or even surviving as human beings because we work. We survive. We're saved by the grace of God. That means our very breath we draw is by the grace of God. And so often we think, if I don't, work, if I don't do this job, I'm not going to survive. That's not true. And so work can be perverted by the lie that work... That no work has meaning, or by the lie that it's the only thing that provides us with worth and meaning. But a third way, a third lie about work is that only certain types of work have meaning. And this one we'll go through quickly, but we create hierarchies. We value certain work over others. We say, oh, you're a CEO, or you're a lawyer. Or in the Christian world, oh, you're a missionary, you're a pastor, a social worker. You have this inherent value to you because of what you do. But then if you are uh, a different career, if you're a potato farmer, or maybe a barista, or maybe a garbage man, maybe you're a stay-at-home parent, we start to assign different values to you. As a society, we do this. We say some work is better than others. And then we are categorizing people. And this also comes in this Genesis narrative. In chapter 4, we see Cain and Abel get into the worst kind of conflict where murder is the result because one type of work is seen as better than another. Or at least that's one of the, one of the themes going on in that story where Cain gets jealous of Abel because of the work he gets to do. And obviously I could preach... I could preach for the rest of the afternoon, if I'm honest with you, on this topic, because I feel strongly about it, because it's very core to some of my story. I'm not going to, but one final lie I want to talk about, and then we will move on, is that uh, the one final lie is that work is just a means to an end. 
and I touched on this before, but this idea that it is merely for survival, that it has no inherent worth or value. This lie has caused people to use their work for power, for monetary gain, but not for the purposes for which it was designed. And it's designed to create, to order, to nurture, to commission this world. And if power and monetary gain are the ends and the purpose of work, then the means by which we get to those ends end up not mattering as much. And so our work is used to destroy or to disorder, to deceive or oppress instead of to bless and create and cause to flourish. And so when work is used for this end and for the ends of power and money at the expense of other people, at the expense of creation, It no longer resembles the work we were created to do. And that's the fourth way I see work disrupted in this world we see. Now, there are more, but in the interest of time, I'm going to actually combine our last two points this morning, how the hope and then ultimate culmination or redemption of our work, I think they're related, and so you'll see kind of how these two play out. Because we see in Scripture that God immediately begins working for the redemption of our work. When Noah is born, he's given a name that means comfort in Hebrew. And his father says, Noah, and I'm quoting from chapter um, 5, verse 29, Noah will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord cursed. His dad sees, Noah's dad sees him as a hope for this this curse on the ground, this curse on work. And when Moses comes along in Exodus 3, he's told he will lead the people out of toil and ministry, misery, not ministry, misery and oppression into a land that's not cursed, into a land that's flowing with milk and honey. And then, of course, when God hands down the Ten Commandments to Moses for his people Israel, one of the sacred commandments, one of the ten, along with murder, along with, do not murder, that's the commandment, along with do not commit adultery, is honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, have six days of work, that's important, but a day of rest. God is, God is caring for them, making sure that this labor and toil will not last seven days of the week. And so, we're, like I said, we're going to talk about rest in a few weeks. It's going to be very important probably for many of us. But just note here that God desired that people would not find themselves overworked but he's seeking redemption for this work. And of course, ultimately, when Christ shows up, this is our ultimate vision of redemption of work. And one of my favorite things about who Christ was when he came to this world is that he wasn't a scholar, he wasn't royalty, he wasn't a politician. He came as a woodworker, just like his earthly father, Joseph. And as everything in Jesus's life was done in obedience to his father, that If that's true, then when he spends 12 years of his short adult life working with his hands, creating chairs and tables and beds out of trees, this is an act of obedience to God. And then Jesus does turn 30. He begins his ministry of preaching and healing. But he reaches out to people of the most loathed and lowly professions, right? We know much of this, but he reaches out to four fishermen to become disciples. People who have never perhaps been taught to read. Invited to join him in ministry. Matthew, the tax collector, is invited to be a disciple before, presumably, he's changed maybe anything about the way he does business. 
And my favorite story is the story of Zacchaeus. When Jesus meets Zacchaeus, he remains a tax collector. He just changes everything about the way he does his business. Jesus says, your work matters. How you do your work matters. But he asks manual laborers and these tax collectors to be his closest friends and ultimately to be the foundation of the church and not to quit their earthly work and do heavenly work, but to do both, that they're both connected. Because Paul continues to make tents, Simon and Andrew continue to fish after Jesus calls them, and it's good. Martin Luther, uh, who began the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, noticed this about Jesus, and he as a priest wrote in the three treatises, it is pure fiction that the Pope Bishops, priests, and monks are called the spiritual estate, while princes and lords and artisans and farmers are called the temporal estate. This is indeed a piece of deceit and hypocrisy, but no one needs to be intimidated by it. And for this reason, all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate. And there is no difference among them except that of office because we're all consecrated priests by baptism. And as St. Peter says, Martin, Martin Luther wrote, you are a royal priesthood and a priestly realm. This is a beautiful redemption Jesus brings to our work, that every one of us is commissioned to do work that matters, to work, in, and it delights the Father, because our identity is not going to be in our occupation, but it's going to be in being children of God, made in God's image, not saved by the work we do, but invited to work alongside God. And so that means whether we make spreadsheets or make coffee or make chairs or whether we teach or sell things or raise our kids, whatever we're doing, we're invited to a work that's lasting and has meaning in the kingdom of God. We're invited to help this world flourish, to order and create and nurture and commission the next generation. And Jesus promises that all that kind of work will be done in his name. Psalm 90, we heard also read today, is one of my all-time favorite psalms, mostly because of the last line, because it says, may the favor of the Lord rest upon us and establish the work of our hands. Establish it. As I look at all the work I've done up to this point, sometimes I can, it can feel very insignificant to me, even meaningless, as we talked about before. And what's more, I know that I have been part of systems that have worked for power and monetary gain without regard for maybe oppressing or destroying the earth or other people. But even in the midst of that, we can still pray, may the favor of the Lord rest upon us and establish the work of our hands. God, redeem even the brokenness we've been a part of and the little work we are able to do, make it last establish it, multiply it for the sake of the kingdom you're building. And in the interest of full disclosure, I want to share a story with you, but I need to share it first that much of this sermon and, the, and some of the information I've been sharing today comes from Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, which is a really, really helpful book on this topic. If you haven't read it, I highly encourage you to read it, especially if some of this discussion leaves you hungry for more. But... Um, in the introduction of the book, Keller tells a story that I want to just recount briefly for you. It's a story about J.R.R. Tolkien, the author. And the story comes as Tolkien was in the midst of writing the epic Lord of the Rings series, which he was working on, remember, for much of his life. He created languages. He created 
whole uh, worlds for this book. But World War II has come uh, to his kind of time in history. It's in full swing. And he is actually uncertain that he's going to be able to finish his book. And he's kind of despairing about it. He's really getting depressed that he's not going to be able to finish this masterpiece that he's been working his whole life in some ways towards. But one night, Tolkien woke up from a dream and he quickly penned a short story that had come to him in the night. And it was about a painter. The painter was about to die, or as Tolkien put it, he was about to take a long journey. The story is called Leaf by Niggle. Niggle, yeah. Before his death, Niggle desperately wanted to paint a very specific tree that he had in mind. It had beautiful leaves. It had this sprawling landscape behind in the background. And so Niggle bought a huge canvas, I mean like the size of his bedroom, to make this painting come, come to life, to create this thing. And so he was spending, he worked and worked, spending his last days, he knew he didn't have much time, trying to get this painting out on paper, but um, he was desperately wanting to paint this, but the canvas was, making, was remaining mostly blank, and all he could finish was just this one little leaf. He just kept worrying it and, and fixing it and making it this perfect leaf. And then this is it, the way it was when he died. There's still just this single little leaf there. But then Tolkien writes that as Niggle is on his journey to heaven, he's died, he reaches the outskirts of the heavenly country. And now I'm going to directly quote Tolkien's story. Something catches his eye. He runs to it, and there it is, before him stood the tree, his tree, finished, its leaves opening, its branches growing, and bending in the wind, this wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed but never been able to capture. He gazed at the tree, and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide and said, it is a gift. In this world, his work had ended unfinished, barely appreciated or even legible to people. But in this new country, the permanent and real world of heaven, his tree's complete. It's finished. And of course, this provided tremendous comfort to Tolkien. This idea that if he didn't finish The Lord of the Rings, which he did, think we're all thankful, but if he didn't, that in the next life, it would be there. It would be finished. It would be established. Ultimately, until Jesus returns, all of our work remains incomplete, marred by sin or by human limitation, by broken systems or sickness or death. But that work we're promised will be redeemed. It will be finished. It will be perfected. And so the work we do now will be established and made beautiful and full, no matter how imperfect, when Christ returns. And it's not meaningless, is what this says. It's not a means to an end. It's not all that we are either, but it's part of God's very nature, and it's part of God's perfect plan for all of us. And now, again, there's a lot more to be said on this. This topic affects every one of us. We're beings who are made to work as our Creator does. But for each of us today, I think Christ would like us to remember that we're designed to create. We're designed to order and nurture and commission the next generation. And there's so many lies out there about work. So many ways it's perverted. 
But Jesus says, your work, you work because it's good, and I have made it. You work because it causes my creation to flourish, and because our creators invited you to work alongside him. As we close this morning, I actually want to um, spend a little time, and this makes some of us uncomfortable, but I want to spend a little time breaking into groups of twos and threes and just sharing one, kind of one question. It's a two-part question, but it's one question. And if you're sitting with a spouse or a friend, go ahead and invite someone near you to join that you might not know as well, or break up couples if you, if you are comfortable. But I want you to ask this question, what is your primary work right now? And it could be anything. What is your primary work right now, and how can I pray for you in it? What's your primary work right now, and how can I pray for you in it? And whether your work is job searching right now, or it's a paid occupation, or it's in your home, or it's in a volunteer capacity, whatever that work you feel like is your kind of central one now, share it. And then I'd invite you to spend just a moment praying for each other. And if you're not comfortable praying out loud, it's okay. You can, you can literally just say, hey, well, I'll spend a moment in silent praying for you and then pass to the next person. Um, we'll take about five minutes to do this. The band will come back up and just start to play some background music and then we'll begin in worship again. So I invite you to pray for each other. Amen.